the Fed pivots too soon, that if they stop fighting inflation, not even pivot, but let's just say they go 75 at this meeting and say, you know what, we're just going to go 25 basis point increments for the next few meetings because we think inflation's starting to come down. The bond market's going to throw up. Yields are going to go much higher. And that has this circular effect on everything. It's not just bond investors that would get hurt in that environment, but companies now have higher borrowing costs higher mortgages, it's just going to shut back, you know, all that economic pressure that people may have thought was being alleviated because the Fed's pivoting, it's actually the opposite. It's going to squash the economy. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with portfolio manager Michael Leibowitz. If you haven't yet watched part one of this discussion with Michael, in which he explains why the endgame for the current global central banking system is now much closer than ever, head over to our channel at youtube.com slash Wealthian and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment themes we discuss in this video. And Michael also shares his outlook on which assets he thinks will perform best through the rough ride he sees ahead for the rest of this year. So be sure to stick around to the end of the video for that. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Michael Leibowitz. I wanna get now to where you think things are headed from here. Real quick before I do though, a question I'd wanted to ask you about the bond market was, um, we interviewed uh, Bill Fleckenstein in this program not that long ago. And he said, yeah, the Fed may pivot, but if, if the Fed pivots like it highly likely will, in his opinion, before really fixing the inflation problem, he fears it will lose the bond market at that point in time. So a lot of people sort of simplistically in their head say, OK, well, if the Fed pivots, then we just go back to the way life's been for the past 10 years. You know, interest rates, rock bottom lows and stocks and everything to the moon. It may not work out that way this time and, and probably certainly wouldn't work out that way if, if the bond market took the long end of the curve and just said, sorry, Fed, we don't believe that you are ever going to get inflation under control now. And now we demand higher yields to compensate us for the, the new risk. Bingo. And that's how I end my latest article, the one that came out on Wednesday, is with that exact sentiment that if the Fed pivots too soon, that if they stop fighting inflation, not even pivot, but let's just say they go 75 at this meeting and say, you know what, we're just going to go 25 basis point increments for the next few meetings because we think inflation's starting to come down, the bond market's going to throw up. Yields are going to go much higher. And that has this circular effect on everything. It's not just bond investors that would get hurt in that environment, but companies now have higher borrowing costs, higher mortgages. It's just going to shut back, you know, all that economic pressure that people may have thought was being alleviated because the Fed's pivoting. It's actually the opposite. It's going to squash the economy. So the Fed, that's why the Fed's in such a bind here. Fed really can't stop until they get inflation down and persistently down, not just down for two or three months, but down. And, you know, we're talking about down, we're talking about 2% year over year inflation. Right now, inflation is coming up on 10%. And so many items in that inflation report, once you get beyond kind of the volatile food and energy, and even real estate, they're all rising at five, six, 7%. It's not just two or three items driving it. It's virtually everything is rising well above the Fed's 2% rate. So that's the risk. The Fed stalls, the Fed pivots, the Fed doesn't do what the bond market wants it to do. And that's why following long-term bond yields, I think is the key to, to understand what the economy will do and what the stock market will do. Okay. So following long-term bond yields, um, which Lance and I do every week on this program, but we'll continue to do it even more intently uh, you given your, your counsel there. Um, is it fair to say that you think that instance of the Fed pivoting before it's got inflation truly trained and the, the bond market pushing back, do you feel that that's the more probable outcome here? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really know. I don't trust the Federal Reserve. I, I think they will. They have in the past been so quick to save the financial community so quick to save banks, to save hedge funds, to, to make sure we never have a recession, that 
have they changed? You know, yeah, their activity the last few months looks a little different, but it was just six, nine months ago where Powell was saying, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates when inflation was soaring, the economy was booming. So do I trust the Fed of the last four months or the Fed of the last 40 years is what you're asking me. And I think I have to trust the Fed of the last 40 years, which means that a stall or pivot or even just a much less hawkish rhetoric from the Fed is a decent potential over the next three to six months, which may help financial markets in a very short run. But I think it's a very deadly gamble by the Fed. Okay, a deadly gamble. And the interesting thing, too, is, is like, you know, is it a gamble or is it really like the only card the Fed has to play at this point in time, right? You know, there's, there's, there's some people who say, well, well, will the Fed keep hiking for longer? And then there are those who say, can it, right? Because at some point, the higher interest rates just start bringing the entire, you know, financial system down. Right. Um, so, you know, it may have no, no choice but to have to pivot before it could really fully deal with inflation, just because again, the whole, the whole system is coming down. Um, uh, so anyways, I don't know. Yeah, any, any commentary one way or the other? On well, I would just say so far they've done, if you kind of look at what's happened, they've raised rates aggressively and the market has raised rates aggressively. Stock market's down about 20%, but in a very orderly fashion, loan losses, things like that at, at banks are ticking up, but they're not extreme. So, so far, they've been able to slowly let the air out of the bubble. And it's been, I guess you could say, successful. That, you know, will they be able to keep doing it? Will they be able to maybe let the stock market slowly drop in this kind of dependable trend? Or will it just start waterfalling? And that's when all bets are off. Credit spreads, that's another way of looking at what's going on. So the difference between say an investment grade company corporate bond versus a treasury market and junk corporate bonds versus a corporate markets. So far they've been pretty tight, meaning that corporate bond investors are not that worried that there's a big recession coming on, that there's corporate defaults coming on, but can they keep that constrained? And this is where the Fed gets into their third uh, mandate or they have two mandates that are congressional and one they just picked up themselves and that's financial stability. And we know that prices and employment are guiding them, right? That's what Congress has told them to do. And that's what they talk about all the time. But we also know that financial instability has gotten the Fed to do things. And again, back to 2019, that was some minor financial instability that caused the Fed to lower rates and stop QT. So what happens if credit, credit spreads start blowing out? What happens if something like uh, Greece or, or a European country really start hemorrhaging? What happens if the stock market starts falling rapidly? You know, there's a lot of what ifs and that's the financial stability. And what will the Fed do? Will they pivot because a medium-sized bank is on the ropes? Will they pivot if, if credit spreads blow out 5%. So if junk bonds become 5% more costly versus treasury bonds, that, and that's where I have zero trust that the Fed will continue to do, do the right thing. And what they will do is try to stop some junk rated company from going bankrupt. Okay. All right. Now you and Lance and the team at RIA have the responsibility of navigating client capital through what may happen here. So you and I have been talking about a number of different types of potentialities of what the future might bring. Um, I think it's safe to say that you think the next six months to a year um, is, is gonna be volatile to say the least. And it's gonna have a lot of potential for, you know, U-turns both mm -hmm. policy-wise and, and what may be happening, you know, market-wise. Um, so, uh, I guess, what do you think is, what's your current market outlook in terms of where you think asset prices are more likely to go? And then in terms of assets, which ones do you think are more suitable for this environment and which ones maybe you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole right now? Right. So the market has done a good job. I'm going to work backwards through that. The market has done a good job of really punishing very, very high growth companies that were very overvalued, 
right? A lot of, uh, I don't know if you've ever talked about the ARC funds, but Kathy Woods Fund invests in disrupt, disruptive technology. Some of those stocks, which are real companies, Teladoc and uh, Palantir, and there's a bunch of them, are down 60, 70, 80%. So some stocks have gotten pretty beat up at this point. And they, there's Facebook is another one. You know, it's crazy, but it may be a value stock now. So I think what we have to think about is as long as the Fed's doing what they're doing, the trend is lower. They're pulling liquidity out of the markets. Markets are liquidity driven. And that liquidity is Fed based much more so now than it was 10 years ago. And that was much more than 20 years ago. So the primary driver of direction is lower. Like we discussed earlier, valuations are still very high and earnings are likely to come down, which actually makes valuations a little higher. So we're conservative. We're sitting on a lot of cash right now. And we've also lowered our beta. So we went into the, the end of December, December with actually more exposure than our benchmark. And then over the course of the year, starting on January 4th, the first bit trading day of the year, we've been dropping our exposure because of what the Fed is doing, because of what's happening with interest rates. Now there's you know, there's a trend channel that's been pretty, you can pretty easily spot it on a graph. And there are times where you're at the bottom end of that and there's some upside and decent upside. Bear markets have tremendous bounces, reflexive rallies. And that's been true throughout history going, you know, going back to the, to the 30s. Same in uh, 2000, 2008 um, and other bear markets. Um, so what we try to do is manage that. And, and look, honestly, we don't know what's going to happen. So what we're looking at is, is what's the Fed doing? What are the odds they pivot? What are the odds the market thinks they pivot? And we, we think about that trend and how that trend may adjust. And if the Fed does certain things, if market participants think the Fed's going to do something, if inflation drops. But right now, we're on both the stock and bond side of our portfolios. We're sitting on a lot of cash because we think the trend is down. And when you think about where to protect yourself, it's value. You wanna own companies that are trading at low valuations, that have higher dividends, that have sustainable cash flows, that are not predicated on high levels of debt. Again, if interest rates are gonna rise, those companies that, that need debt, that need debt to roll over are potentially in trouble. So if you, looked at, if you look at what's worked all year, it's higher dividend value. That, that has been the key to outperforming in this market. And I think until something changes, that will be the key for the next three months or six months. Again, there are going to be periods where, where technology rules the day like we've seen for the last few days. But I think the value, dividend orientation, and then, you know, you kind of have energy commodity stocks. That's the wild card. Tell me what's going on with inflation. And I can pretty much tell you what's going to happen with those. Uh, we do have some energy holdings, some big companies, which we like. Um, but it's not a huge percentage of our portfolio. And right now we're seeing a lot of demand destruction. So our exposure to commodity companies is pretty low at this point. Very All right, low. great. So cash value stocks, uh, those with high dividends and justify or, uh, sustainable cash flows, um, and then some energy and commodity stock exposures as a play on the higher inflation. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for sharing those, by the way. And then um, uh, you didn't mention bonds there. Um, and I, I'm not trying to make this a leading question too much, but Lance and I do talk about um, long dated US treasuries pretty regularly. Um, they're kind of interesting because you could, you could make the case that if the Fed keeps hiking up until the point that something breaks, at that point in time, uh, you could have the crisis play with long-dated U.S. treasuries where just everyone's trying to put their money in there just to find safe haven. Right. And you could also say, well, all right, but if the Fed pivots and the Fed starts easing and it starts buying treasuries again, you know, right before it, st it stopped the easing program, it was buying I don't know how many tens of billions of, of treasuries every month. It was like 60 or 80 billion or something 80, like that 80. a month, right? 
Yeah. So, you know, the Fed could go back to that and that would be bullish for, for long-dated U.S. Treasuries. So I'm just curious, which, what's your current outlook on the, the long bond there? Again, it's the Fed. If the Fed stays aggressive, I really like the long bond, long treasury bond, not corporate bonds necessarily, right. to some, you know, certain companies, high grade companies, but we really like long bonds and we would like to buy more. We're waiting for some technical signals to tell us that there's a more durable bottom in place. But again, if the Fed pivots and they're not truly fighting inflation, all bets are off on all types of bonds. So, so again, it's just like we're looking at what the Fed's doing for the trend in the equity market. The same holds true for the bond market. But right now, we're pretty bullish on long-term U.S. Treasury bonds. All right. And, and just to clarify, um, is your primary reason why you're bullish is because you think at some point there's going to be a rush to safety because the Fed's going to continue hiking? Yes. And because the Fed's goal right now, at least, and, and what, they're, what they appear to be doing is fighting inflation and causing a recession. They'll never tell you their goal is to cause a recession. Right. They'll never say but, that. But you read between the lines and their goal is demand destruction. So it's a nicer word way of saying recession. Right, right, um, exactly. And they do say that word an awful lot. You know, that yes, uh, yes. Powell has said, look, there's nothing we can do about the supply side, but we can go after demand. Right. Now, here's an interesting thing, Adam, that you said that, well, if they do QE again, they're going to buy bonds and yields will go down, which makes a ton of sense. But what we've learned over the last 10 years is that bond yields go down when they are either not buying bonds or doing QT and they actually go up during QE. So interesting. And it's, I think it's the inflationary effect. QE is perceived to be inflationary. Whether it is or isn't, we could debate that all day. But when the Fed is being hawkish, when the Fed is doing things like raising rates, the bond market likes it. That's why bond yields dropped when they started doing QT. They were reducing the balance sheet. They were raising rates. They were doing all the right things that a central bank should be doing to, to fight inflation, to control economic growth. So, so I would argue that if they start going to QE again, I probably would not want to be in bonds, depending on the circumstance. Okay. And, and just for the people who are asking this, as they hear you say that, saying, well, hey, we were just talking about this sort of 40-year period where the Fed was engineering lower and lower interest rates by intervening. And, uh, and that gave this massive tailwind to higher and higher bond prices down there. Um, how, how would you square that circle for them? So first of all, QE didn't start till 2008. So right. the Fed was engineering lower rates by just fooling around with the Fed funds rate for a long time. And But again, if you look from 2008 to present, periods of QE were higher yields, periods where they were not doing QE or that one instance of QT were lower yields. So you know, again, when what rate are you looking at? You know, are you looking at Fed funds rates? Are you looking at 30-year bond rates or somewhere in between? And I think what you'll see, and especially as we get closer to that end game, as the problem gets more acute, the more confidence in the Fed from the bond market, not the stock market, the bond market, means that the Fed is heavily fighting inflation, causing recessions, that's what the bond market wants to see. And that's what they're seeing now. And that's why you're starting to see a bottom form. And, you know, like you said, we start getting into financial instability problems, be it here domestically or abroad or a combination of both. And money will just rush in to longer term bonds and potentially shorter term bonds. So there's that's an added benefit potentially. Um, and if the Fed pivots, if they stall, we're certainly going to reevaluate our view on long-term bonds. Okay. And, and again, well, when we say we own 30-year treasury bonds, we're not holding these things for life. We know that they, if you asked me to hold a 30-year bond at 3% for life, I'd say you're crazy. But we, we think of them as trading vehicles. As the yield changes, the prices change. So even though you have an instrument that yields 3%, you could yield 10% or you could yield minus 10% in any given year. And that's when we're buying bonds or selling bonds, that's what we're thinking about because the coupon is still relatively low. If the right. coupon was 10%, that equation's different and we may want to hold them longer. But 
the lower the coupon, the lower the yield, the more you're focused on the price. Uh, on the price. And, and, and that's why, and correct me if this perception is wrong, but, but I think mostly for like a trading vehicle for the, the long US treasury, rather than buying them directly or using an ETF like TLT, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for, for providing all that clarity. And, and it, it underscores a point that I've been making a fair amount over the past couple of weeks, which is that we are, you know, potentially entering an era where you're going to see more things happen uh, that, that have implications that are not what was expected. Um, so, you know, a good example of this is, you know, this year, inflation took off. And yet the kind of, you know, what, what a year and a half ago would have been the obvious inflation plays. Oh, I'm going to buy gold. <laughs> and for the newer people, I'm going to buy Bitcoin. That's what I'm going to defend against this. Well, both have, have not performed great, right, right, over the past year to date. Um, and uh, we talked a little bit about this already about the Fed pivot is, you know, the Fed may pivot. P people who are predicting that might be correct. But what happens afterwards may be very different than what they expect. And one potential example of that is what we talked about with the bond market could could say, hey, we're taking rates higher, not lower. Right. All right. So um, look, Mike, I'm looking at the time. Thank you for going so long here with me and giving us so much of your time. I really My appreciate pleasure. it. Um, couple concluding questions. Um, first one is, uh, well, I, I, I'll, I'll sort of let you wrap up in any way that you like, but you spend your days you know, figuring out how to allocate client capital. You and the firm that are RIA are talking to regular people, like the ones watching this video, uh, who are just trying uh, to protect their wealth through this very tumultuous time. Um, hopefully find ways to, to, to grow it, but usually prudently. You know, they, they, what they really don't want to do is become roadkill on this process when they've worked so hard to to build wealth, to create a financial future for their families. So is there any sort of parting counsel you would give them that we haven't talked about already? Uh, you know, I think we're in a period of time where the more conservative you can be, the better you're off. Doesn't mean you're gonna have periods where the market does, you know, market can shoot up a lot and you're gonna be left behind a little, but I think we're entering a very, very tricky period. And I mean, look, I'm 50, almost 55 years old. And I started my career in 1990. So I've never seen inflation. The last time I saw inflation was in the back of my mom, you know, my parents' car waiting in a gas line. That, that, those are my memories of inflation and how, how markets and investor sentiment are during those periods. I don't remember. I can read about it. I can look at data. But none of us, very few of us professionals have lived through this. Very few economists have lived through this. Not many, well, probably a lot of politicians have lived through this because they're all up there, <laughs> but, but most Fed members are not that old either. So we're dealing with something that is clearly different from everything we're used to. And we have to decide what made sense yesterday still makes sense today. What makes sense yesterday does not make sense anymore. Things have changed. And this is something Lance and I debate all the time. We were talking about consumer sentiment this morning. And is can we still look at very low levels of consumer investor sentiment and say that's a market bottom? I don't know, because we've never had inflation at 10% in our professional lifetimes. So you have to think about the work, look at look at everything going on with a different different view than you were before. And when you do that, when you're chartering new waters, being conservative, going for value stocks, reducing your exposure, sitting on cash, all make more sense. Doesn't mean you're going to catch every wave, but you're also not going to get pummeled by the wave either. All right. Very, very prudent advice and, and nicely very consistent with what your business partner, Lance, uh, reaffirms uh, every week on this thing. program, too. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, so Michael, um, for folks who have enjoyed getting to know you through this interview and would like to follow you and your work, because I know you publish relatively frequently, where right. should they go? So every Wednesday, I put out an article on realinvestmentadvice.com. And every day, Lance and I put together a commentary. And I actually love the commentary. I, I enjoy writing it. Lance writes some of it too. Basically, what it is, is four or five stories with graphs none more than a paragraph on a very uh, long day. We'll put in two paragraphs. 
uh, per each little section. And it gives you a nice rundown of things that are happening, economic data, what the Fed is thinking, maybe just a graph you've never seen before that it's, that it's whether it's technical or fundamental. Uh, I think it's very interesting. It's a great way to start your day. If it takes you more than five minutes to read, you're reading too slow. Um, and there's, there's always great graphs to, you know, even if you just want to kind of skim it and kind of find the little, little paragraphs that interest you. So those are primarily the two ways I communicate with the public via okay. the word, via word. Great, great. And I, I see your work picked up on other websites as well. So I, I know it's right. beyond there, but the, the source of the headwaters there is, is uh, real estate, uh, sorry, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com. Exactly. Great. All right. Well, look, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the program. Really look forward to having you back on again soon. Whenever you want, Adam. Thank you. All right. Well, now's the time in the program where we bring on the lead partners at New Harbor Financial. They're one of the financial advisory firms officially endorsed by Wealthion. Uh, I'll be joined by the lead partners, John Lodra and Mike Preston. And we're going to react a bit to what Mike Leibowitz just said, uh, but also talk about what's going on right now in the markets. John and Mike, great to see you guys. John, why don't we start with you? Um, I know you've got a couple of visuals you want to walk through related to a bit about what Michael just said there, but but high level, what did you take away from Michael's interview here? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's uncanny his name is Michael because that very well could have been a conversation that my partner, Mike Preston, and I could have any given day because um, much of what he said really sounds like it's right out of, right out of our brains. And, and uh, you know, we, we uh, you know, obviously respect him for his, uh, you know, what we consider to be uh, rigor because we, we try to hold ourselves to a rigor to be open-minded about things, but the data kind of speaks to a certain picture. And he, I think very nicely, um, drew out a lot of big picture data points, but also some finer shorter term data points that paint a, a pretty, pretty concerning picture that we, you know, we've been talking about for a long time. You know, his, his, his comments about, um, you know, one of the big picture real problems in, 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 in the system is, is the explosion, and excuse the pun there, but the explosion of uh, unproductive debt over the last several decades. And really has created a, a Franken economy, Franken markets, really, mostly. Um, and there are a couple of chart, you know, kind of graphics I, I came across today that really speaks to that. You know, the, the first one is more of a, a quote that I, that I thought was very apropos. You know, uh, as a rule, panics do not destroy capital. They merely reveal the extent to which as it has been previously destroyed by its betrayal into hopelessly unproductive works. You know, so zombie companies, zombie projects, you know, speculative debt used for margin speculation, all these things are just smoke and mirrors, drags on, on true economic prosperity and, you know, ultimately manifest themselves time and time again in asset price bubbles that feel great when they're going up, especially if you're, you're riding them, uh, but they are absolutely devastating when they de deflate, so... And then the next couple of charts here really just speak to that in pictures. There's there's one here that shows the, you know, percent of uh, federal debt in the U.S. as a percent of gross uh, GDP, gross domestic product. And you can see over over the years here, this goes back to the uh, '60s, I think. Um, you know that ratio has exploded. You know, all, you know the the shorthand version of that is it's taken much more debt in the system to produce. Um, it increasingly lower marginal gains in economic growth and, and that and this this actually under underestimates the ratio if you if you factor in unfunded liabilities and things like that and entitlements it's really an ugly picture uh, and then the third graph this is actually out of a, a financial times article today you know basically talks about over the last bunch of decades despite record low interest rates and 40 years of declining interest rates and great time to be a borrower certainly for, as a homeowner but certainly as a government that could invest in systems and infrastructure and productive, you know, improvements in, in a country. Um, this chart shows that the net government investment here in the U.S. Is, has been a steadily declining percent of GDP. Really egregious. You know, we've squandered an opportunity here to, to invest productively instead and, and, and just have squandered it in zombie, um, you know, endeavors, really. Uh, well, those are great visuals, and, and I think they do really underscore, like you said, um, a lot of times when you see a correction going on, the, the public's perception is that um, value is kind of getting destroyed in front of their eyes in real time. 
And, you know, it's really important, as you said, to keep in mind that, no, that value has already been destroyed. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the true fundamental value has already been destroyed. The price is just catching up is really what these corrections are. Um, all right. So um, glad you brought those up. Those do really underscore what, what Michael Leibowitz was saying. Uh, now, Michael Preston, um, I want to talk to you real quickly um, about just what's going on in the markets right now, because we are seeing a little bit of a bounce. Um, I want to put up a chart here by uh, technical analyst Sven Henrik, who we've had on this program a couple of times. I know you follow quite uh, closely as well. Um, but this is a, a chart of the S&P, and Sven has basically sort of noted here how, for the better part of it, of this year, the S&P keeps you know, making new lows. It's sort of, you know, bouncing its way down to uh, the lows of the recent past. Um, but recently, it made a higher low. And if you look at the sort of trend line that, that Sven has uh, drawn on the, uh, the S&P here, it looks like it's actually breaking out to the upside. So is this the long-awaited uh, relief rally, bounce, whatever you want to call it, that, that a lot of folks have been sort of, you know, eagerly awaiting for so they can jump back in and maybe ride a nice pop in the markets here? Hey, Adam. Uh, it could be. I don't know. I mean, the last, you know, the, the last couple of days, we did indeed break out of that, 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 well, that downtrend. Well, technically today, I guess I'd say, based on, on the chart that you mentioned. But we, you know, we have seen higher low recently, yesterday, um, and today is the 20th. So I guess it would be yesterday, the 19th of July. I believe we saw a 98% up day, or 98% of the, um, you know, the stocks were advancing on the day versus, versus not. So it was an impressive, impressive move here recently. And this is generally what you would see when you start to see a kickoff. You know, a kickoff can happen to the upside or the downside. Normally, it starts with a gap and then, you know, we'll continue in that direction. So we did see what could look like a kickoff to the upside here. Um, some of the short-term sentiment figures look very bearish. They're, they all seem to line up and say, well, geez, maybe everyone's on the wrong side of the trade. But... You know, here's the here's the problem. To me, if you really step back and look at this on a weekly or monthly chart, it looks to me like we've entered a bear market. It's the most orderly bear market I think we've seen in a long time. It topped in November of last year, if you look at the total market index, or, or topped on January 4th, if you look at the S&P. And I'm just looking at the numbers through today's close. The Dow is down about 13.7%, not even 14 I mean, it's hard to believe we're even in a bear market with the Dow down only 14%. The NASDAQ's about 17.8. I'm sorry, the S&P is 17.8. The NASDAQ and the, and the Russell 2000 are a little bit more still at around 25. But as Michael talked about in, in his talk, there's the valuations are obscene. He cited the CAPE, the cyclically adjusted PE ratio which is down around 30 or so after topping out closer to 40. And he mentioned that hit 42 back in, um, I guess that was the tech bubble back in 2000. It, it doesn't tell the whole story though. The cyclically adjusted PE ratio is an average over 10 years of a company or a whole index's you know, earnings. But we, I know we, we mentioned John Hussman's name quite often on this program. That's because his data is so good. He points out, and there's other charts that we could share or, or maybe do it at a later date, that show that profit margins are at all-time highs right now, close to about 12%, 12 cents on the dollar uh, across the board for the entire S&P and the entire market. That, it's unsustainable. Even Warren Buffett has said over the decades that a long-term profit margin on the entire market of more than 6 to 8% is unsustainable. And yet here we have been 10 to 12% for many years and more recently been closer to 12%, really because of government spending, which we think is unsustainable. And all kinds of pressures are now going in the other direction. So John Husband actually adjusts the CAPE with margin, normalizing margins, he calls it the, the margin-adjusted CAPE, and that number is, is you know, still amongst the most obscene ever, still in the 40s, after being up in the 50s. So 
And by the way, that valuation measure, both the CAPE and the margin adjusted CAPE is very, very highly correlated to what will actually likely happen in the market going forward. And that model is projecting flat to negative returns over the next decade. So here we are all wondering if this is the breakout, if this is the real move, yet we've got the most blindingly overvalued market still that we've really ever had. And that's, that's the concern. So yeah, we're looking for, at it, wondering about short-term opportunities, might even put a trade on here soon in something, but um, very, very cautious with an eye on the exit and certainly would have hedges in any case if we did anything. All right, um, it's all great data, Mike. And it, it sounds like if uh, I can put words in your mouth here, you're saying, as we've talked about in videos past, hey, you know, bear markets are famously punctuated with um, real ripping rallies, upside rallies, uh, but 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 that fizzle out and you get you get back to the newer lows. For the reasons you were just talking about, it sounds like you still think that uh, you know over the longer term here, the likelihood of of lower prices is, is higher in your estimation, even though we may have some of these you know face ripper rallies in the interim. Um, I was about to ask you if you were thinking of playing any of them or just stepping to the sidelines and just waiting them out. Sounds like um, you you may dabble a little bit, but but you'll just be using a little bit of chips versus the vast majority of the dry capital you have. Is that all true? Yeah, we're reluctant to do it because we still haven't seen that first elevator drop moment in this market. Again, it's been a very contained measured decline and everyone knows that's what the fed wants right and it seems like the fed get is getting what they want so far and we have got this bit of a kickoff rally that we just talked about so um we don't have fomo we're not afraid of missing out we it, it, we we want to wait for the right right entry as far as the charts tell us to me to us it looks like we were primed to have that kind of first moment that first kind of uh, panic moment which we never got to bring us down to that 32 to 3,400 level in the S&P. That's maybe even 3,600 in the S&P. So 32 to 3,400 is the broad range. And I don't think, we don't think that will be an ultimate bottom. We think that's a target for kind of that first elevator move wave. That's where we'd like to really put on a good scale. Not here, not under pressure. But um, so if we do anything, it's going to be very, very carefully, very measured, very hedged, because really we think there's a high likelihood this market rolls over and, you know, after this bull trap, which it probably likely is, and then rolls over and then does that, that move that I just talked about. We would rather put the position on there or start putting a position on there than here. At the same time, though, this has been just a totally, you know, a gun to the, to, to the head type market, you know, forcing everybody to chase. We don't want to do that, but we may we may very small and tactically put something on just in case this thing goes a little bit further. But no, we think it's probably yet another bounce that's likely to fail here at any time. Okay, and and on a related note, John, I know I think you've got a chart of of the Nasdaq showing some of the the counter trend rallies that have been happening there. Um, these are, you know. I guess opportunities if you're a day trader, um, but if you're somebody who's trying to chart a longer term course through this, I'm, I'm sure it's gotta be a little crazy making sometimes to see the markets plunging, then zooming up and plunging again. <laughs> um, so anyways, why don't you speak to that chart if yeah, you can. For, yeah, first I wanna call out props. This was a chart that, uh, it's a chart of the NASDAQ, you know, pretty much year to date, uh, but uh, uh, Brent Johnson from Santiago Capital, who you've had on several times and has, has offered his insight, put some annotations on this showing the percentage bounces here on these short-term rallies and essentially what the annualized rate of return would be on those short, vicious bounces. And, you know, this is just another picture. You know, we don't know yet uh, whether our belief that this phase is indeed likely a bear market phase with, with much lower and consistent lows ahead, but um, we talk about it. Michael Leibowitz talked about it. You can go back to many bear markets: the 73-74 market, that the tech bubble uh, bear market, the housing bust bear market. In each of those scenarios, even though the the, the losses were were significant from peak to trough, the, every one of those were defined by very vicious, um, sharp rebound rallies that could have been taken and were by many as suck in, you know, kind of sucker rallies that were just, uh, you know, um, 
seductions into a, a market that had a lot, lot more to go. So yeah, this, and, may and be, we, this may be playing out just very typically, and, and that's kind of our thesis. Right, right. We've, we've talked about this in weeks past that, that the, the goal of the bear market is to take as much money as possible from as many people as possible, right? So it, it takes money from those who are along the market, and then it has these, these rebound rallies to sucker in the people who were sitting in safety on the sidelines who now think the coast is clear. And once they come in, it does another rug pull. Um, so if Mike's right, and this is indeed still an ongoing bear market, to your point, John, this could just be you know, business as usual, the way that a bear market runs. And what was interesting is in this morning's uh, premiere, you know, when we launch a new video on the, on the Wealthy on YouTube channel, uh, we launch it as what's called a premiere where the video plays in real time initially and uh, there's a live chat. Um, and I like to try to be active in that, you know, as, as often as I can. And today there were several people who were, you know, commenting about how much money they've made by going long uh, technology stocks in the past week or two um, based on, you know, exactly some of the charts you were just showing there, John. Um, and uh, I think one of them was in one of the Kathy Woods funds that, you know, apparently has done great if you look at it for the past 10 days. Um, and it's, it's that kind of um, growing enthusiasm and, and sense of like, hey, I, I, I was smart enough to catch the bottom. Look at me ride this thing. Uh, that's the type of hubris that often can get punctured by these bear market rug pulls here. Um, all right. Well, look, guys, um, in beginning to wrap up here, um, I, I did want to underscore just one thing that that I think you both are saying, but particularly Mike, uh, when he was referencing some of those charts about uh, profit margins and, and whatnot, um, CAPE ratios. Uh, extremes are extreme for a reason, right? You know, they, 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 you can't hang out at an extreme or, or by definition, it long, no longer becomes an extreme. It becomes a baseline, right? So when we look at these charts and see that we're at, you know, all time or close to record extremes, the probability dramatically grows that, that you know, a, a reversion of the mean is likely in, in order. And some of those charts that Mike was talking to certainly show that prices still have a lot further to come down if we do indeed mean revert. Um, one other thing, though, I'd like to get your, your guys' thoughts on real quick, and maybe John will stay with you here for a second. Um, I've talked of late on this program about how um, people should be a little bit cautious when they develop a thesis that says, okay, um, you know, my investment strategy is that if A happens, then B is going to happen, and therefore I'm going to position for that. So I've been talking a lot about this in, in regards to a Fed pivot, right? And Michael Leibowitz and I talked about this a little bit. In other words, the Fed may indeed pivot. You may get the A event that you expect, but the B event that you expect, which is the obvious, quote unquote, obvious development uh, or result may not happen. So in the case of, of a Fed pivot, a lot of people are thinking, oh, well, when the Fed pivots, it'll go back to like the past, the environment of the past decade. And we know that really well. And that's a really nice, fun environment for investors. Um, we may get the Fed pivot, but it might not actually work out that way. And Michael Leibowitz and I talked about how actually uh, interest rates could could actually shoot up as the bond vigilantes step in and, and you know officially kind of rebel against the Fed. Um, but another one that I, I just want to get your thoughts on is we've talked a lot in this program in the past couple of videos about how we think probability is high as we begin to enter Q2 earnings reporting here that we're going to see um, substantial downgrades of revenue and profit forecasts going forward, and you know logically, we think, okay, well, that's going to force Wall Street analysts to bring down their, their um, forward projections for 2023. And mathematically, that's going to have to result in, in the stock price coming down, which I personally still think is the more likely scenario. But I've been reading recently that people saying that, well, you know, um, the prices have come down a fair amount already this year. And so it really all depends on whether, on how much of those those revisions, the price has already taken into account by declining, right? And so you could actually get a disappointing forecast, but have the stock price go up because people say, oh, that the stock was actually pricing in a 30% downward revision and we only got a 20% downward revision. Therefore, you know, the stock should be higher, right? So how, how concerned are you um, about, you know, these these Q2 this Q2 earnings season actually being kind of an unsuspecting catalyst for higher prices here in the near term. Yeah, that's a great question, uh, and obviously we you know 
the humility we have to have in our seat, we can always, we always have to allow for, for that, you know, the unexplicable or the un, unlikely or un, illogical or unexpected to play out. Um, now, clearly there are probably in, individual companies where uh, maybe the share prices fell more than they should have or, or to levels that might be considered values and, and, and therefore, um, you know, positive surprises or even less that less negative surprises than expected can certainly form the basis for for a rally. But if you look at the broad market, we still remain um, at valuations on reliable PE metrics like the Schiller, but even more reliable ones like Mike talked about um, at the most expensive time in history, say maybe 1929 and, and 2000 right depending on how you look at it so you know we're by no means pricing in uh you know everything <laughs> you know there's a whole lot of negative that still need still needs to and should be priced into broadly the stock markets um and this this really speaks to the kind of that opening you know comment we had and that michael lee was had about the you know zombification and the artificiality that is embedded in prices because of all this unproductive debt that really hasn't been cleared out yet. And, um, you know, so um, we have to allow for anything, but it's, uh, you know, I, I would use another example of, you know, the last decade or more, people have been ingrained to think, well, the Fed pivots or, or, or drops rates and things go higher, stocks go higher. Well, you know, that didn't, that wasn't the case in all of history. You know, you go back to the tech bubble, you go back to the housing bubble, the Fed was aggressively as quickly as they can lowering interest rates. And that didn't matter a whiff because once people started running for the exits, um, 0% bank accounts were a fine place to be in their, in their minds because they thought the stock market was going to zero. So yeah, there's all, there's all kinds of examples in both directions where what people expect and what happens um, doesn't hold because we get these ingrained beliefs that just aren't true. Yeah, and, and Mike, maybe I'll let you comment on that. Maybe talk just super briefly about how you guys hedge. And, and just as, as an example, what I was talking about, just gonna put up a chart here of the uh, recent price action in Netflix. So uh, it's been on a tear. Um, Netflix went from something like, uh, let's see if I can pull it up here. Um, I was trading like around 170 bucks or so last Thursday. And today, the day we're speaking, it's now up here at 216. And what caused that change is Netflix uh, announced its, its quarterly reports. Uh, and it, it revealed that it lost a million subscribers. Um, but everybody was expecting it to lose more than that. <laughs> and so since it only lost uh, a million subscribers, uh, the stock has actually done really well here, right? And uh, it's, it's a little crazy making because we would all think, oh my gosh, it's, it's losing a big chunk of its subscriber base. That can't be good for the stock's forecast. But um, again, it's maybe one of those examples that the price had already been sort of overly beaten up in advance of these earnings. Um, so Mike, you know, as John was just sort of saying there, you, 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 you have to have your main thesis, but you've got to be prepared for, you know, surprises, illogical thinking on behalf of market participants, et cetera, in the mix. Um, and obviously you guys, you know, that's a big reason why you guys employ hedges on your major positions, correct? Yeah, absolutely, Adam. You, you know, we are at this era of permanent overvaluation, pretty much. It's gone on for so long. You know, you said if something abnormal stays abnormal long enough, it becomes normal, right? And it feels like that's been most of the last 20 plus years, certainly since 2008, you know, we've had this uh, permanent overvaluation punctuated by sharp drops that were always arrested quickly and then move right back to new, new highs. So in, in that environment, it, it, unless you think things are just going to always revert back to new highs or they're always going to get bailed out, it feels like we really need to have hedges on for that big event because the real risk is that everyone's so bought into the fact that we are at a permanently high plateau, so to speak, and that nothing bad can ever happen because the Fed, um, that you you know you kind of abandon hedges or don't worry about it anymore, or even worse, buy all the way down with no risk control. That's what I think is the real perfect storm about this moment is that is that the whole world is basically thinking that the market you know, is, is somewhat risk-free and that spending money on hedges or, or, or puts or whatever you want to use for hedges is expensive and a waste of money. 
We think that's not true. We, and we do use hedges. We try to make it so that it's as cost-free as possible often. And ideally, we do it to, to bring in income, not, not cost money. So one thing we might do on a, on a sharp drop in the S&P is buy one of the broad indexes like the S&P and then sell a call option uh, against it at the same price or close to the same price and essentially just trying to capture that little bit of premium. That, that bit of premium also gives us some downside protection, but not perfect you know, in that example. It only defrays the downside. So you know, we, our strategy essentially is to wait for our levels, to layer into the market with hedges, remove the hedges at some point, and would love to get much more fully engaged in this market, not just the U.S. market, but international markets, particularly emerging markets, look great. We'd love to get more concentrated there. And, and, you know, just basically let that position ride. But it's like we're facing this constant crash risk all the time and, and that everyone's falling asleep to because the Fed, Fed, the Fed, almost all we all talk about anymore is the Fed. And so, you know, they've absolutely overstepped their bounds as to what their mandate is and what, they, what they've done. And I, I truly think that we'll look back on this era not too long from now and say, wow, what were we thinking? You know, so in the meantime, we'll, we'll be continue to be very cautious, very tactical, and we'll use hedges. All right, great. And, and the reason why I want to underscore that is, is, you know, Mike, you gave a lot of sort of technical reasons why markets could go lower here. Um, you know, when we look at the fundamental side, you know, we're still seeing uh, the U.S. economy contracting in both Q1 and Q2 of this year. Um we talk a lot about recession risk uh, on this channel. I think it, that only continues to go up. We've been beating the drum a lot about um, the, the risk of, of layoffs coming here, which would just exacerbate uh, the impact of these recessions. Um, I just want to note on the day we're talking, uh, Ford just announced that it's laying off 8,000 workers over the next couple of weeks. So we continue to see this relentless drumbeat of not just uh, hiring freezes, uh, but but actual you know layoffs, and and that's scary because we're still at a very early stage here. So the question is, is if we're already seeing this much volume of layoffs at, at the big companies right now, um, you know, what's it going to be like when we're a quarter or two further down the road here, if the economy still continues to stumble from here? Um, and uh, uh, well, let, 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 me, let me tie this with a bow and then Mike, I want to come to you for the very last point here. Um, so John, going to you, um, you know, the reason why I was sort of asking your feedback on preparing for the unexpected is, as we've long said, this is a very treacherous investing environment, particularly for the average investor who has a real life, you know, isn't as experienced as you guys is, are with the markets, doesn't have, you know, eight hours in the day to watch the, the, the markets as they trade in real time. Um, and there's so many cross currents going on here right now. Um, and, and so many, you know, swings in sentiment, we just talked about a bunch of them, that it can really really be crazy making. And, and a lot of these investors sort of start chasing their own tail, right? Oh my God, I thought we were in a bear market and we were going lower, but man, all of a sudden now there's this big rally. Do I got to switch my positions and now go long into this rally? And oh my gosh, the rug just got pulled. What do I do next? So um, to me, and I, I, I'm a bit of a broken record on this, but this is why I think people need to be working with a financial advisor who can help them a kind of craft a plan through this so they don't get whipsawed by their emotions, but B can can be that a steady hand, but also know when to make a smart audible call based upon how things on the ground are changing and can make that decision based upon decades of history of doing this previously in the market. Um, so I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of conclude today's discussion on that point. Yeah, you know, we do watch markets all day, every day and in, into the micro moves. And, and that's important for us to gain our, our short term perspective. But probably most importantly is our, uh, our, our um, requirement to hold ourselves to looking at the bigger picture. Because like, for example, you know, it's very easy to get caught in up in the headlines that, you know, the markets are down 20% year to date, bear market and, you know, especially uh, held against the backdrop of the last decade or more to say, wow, geez, it's bound to bounce, right? Because it's sold off so much already. It's, you know, things are on sale, right? Things are, they got to go higher at some point, even if they go a little lower. When you zoom out and realize that um, the, the, the decline we have thus far this, this year to date hasn't really even undone much of the excess that has been built up. That's where 
you know, we can tie that back into an individual situation, someone that's comfortably retired or has the ability to comfortably retire within their means, put it in the perspective for them. Yeah, we, we can get, you know, you, you can certainly um, put some more on the risk spectrum if, if you'd like, but realize that in the context of this bigger, bigger picture, what you may really be doing in pursuit of these nickels in front of this, the steamroller is maybe utterly um, putting at risk your, your very future, financial future. And that's, that's really where the big picture zoom out is, is just as important as, as the, the day-to-day minute to minute that we, we observe in markets. All right, well, well said, John, and as um, long-term viewers of these videos know, um, if you, you know, well, my, my main recommendation to folks is, is uh, unless you are highly experienced uh, in investing in this type of environment, which honestly very few people are because we haven't been in an inflationary environment for like over 40 years, <laughs> um, uh, highly recommend that you work uh, under the guidance of a professional financial advisor to do that. If you've got a good one, great, stick with them. Uh, but if you don't, or you want a second opinion by another financial advisor who does understand this world very well, and all the trends that we've been talking about here with Michael Leibowitz and with Mike and John here. Um, <clears throat> if you'd like to talk to one of those guys for free, uh, Wealthion will connect you with um, the firms that we endorse, including Mike and John's uh, own firm here. If you want to have a, a free consultation with them, uh, it's totally free, no strings attached, no commitment to work with them. Uh, they just do it as a public service. Then go to Wealthion.com and fill out the short form there and we'll get you connected. All right, Mike Preston, wrapping up here. Um, you made a really interesting observation right before we turned the recording on here that uh, it sounds like Tesla has just announced they've sold 75% of the Bitcoin that they held. Yeah, I just saw that come up on the news. That's it's kind of surprising because Elon Musk has been quite a proponent uh, of digital currency. I, I don't know if it's really significant. Uh, maybe they needed the cash for something else. Um, but it is, you know, Bitcoin has been down pretty hard from the high. A lot of people have felt the pain and I feel sympathy for them, uh, particularly if they came into crypto or Bitcoin late to the game. So yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why, because you know somebody just put up on Twitter here, I think it was actually in, on, on Sven Hendricks feed, he retweeted a tweet from Elon Musk early last year, um, where he said, you know, Tesla has diamond hands. And you know, so, so here we are a year later and they're selling three quarters of their stake. So, yeah, I don't know why, but it is it is the truth. It's it's out on the news. Uh, that's that's interesting. And and I have not researched it yet, so uh, I can't opine too intelligently on it. But it, it seems very much like a notable development that one of the biggest uh, evangelists and champions for, you know, cryptocurrency use um, amongst, you know, the, the major companies, the, the major entrepreneurs uh, in the economy. Um, there's got to be, I think, a, a, a sense of betrayal, I'm going to guess, uh, from the crypto community. And uh, if any of you in the crypto sphere are watching this here who are more active there, uh, if you've got a different opinion or even the same one, just let us know in the comments section below. I'd be really interested to hear what you think of this development. All right, guys, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Um, John and Mike, thanks so much again for joining me this week and helping me make sense for everybody of what's going on in the markets. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen next, but I can guarantee that we will be tracking it here together for folks next week. So thanks so much for joining me, John and Mike. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Had a great time. Thanks, Adam, like usual. Thanks, Adam. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, 
We think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we've put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.